In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Inglestad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, here as always with co-host, advocate, and my personal podcast pilot, Mike Graham. Uh, yeah, we're going to be flying in uh, from 20,000 feet, taking a big right turn down to podcast land. Uh, and as we arrive, it will be bumpy. Everyone, please turn off your electronics. And Well, actually, don't. You need to turn your electronics on and uh, put your headphones in and get ready for the show. It's going to be amazing. The best show you've ever heard. I don't know how to fly, and I'm going to kill us all. Oh, well, the the emergency oxygen tanks just deployed. We're crashing <laughs> right now. The biggest fear of my life, too. Well, yeah, you don't fly. I will not. Wow, so so this so we're jumping right in today. Uh, we're talking about the aviator, and we didn't have an up top thing, but now I feel like I have to ask you: Was this movie hard for you to watch as an anti flying person? No, no, not at all. It doesn't uh, flying doesn't get me like that. I enjoy any like uh, flying thing. I find it exciting, like Top Gun. I like all that kind of stuff. Sure, just not being on the plane yourself. Screw it. Nope. Okay, mm -mm. gotcha. Yeah, not happening. Hate it. Well, so we just said we're talking about The Aviator today. Martin Scorsese directed Leonardo DiCaprio acting. A fantastic movie. We're going to get into all that. But just real quick up top, we want our listeners to know that there's going to be some slight shifts in our format upcoming. We're going to be experimenting a little bit because, Mike, we're coming up on a year, which is very oh exciting. Oh, my gosh. We just had our Facebook one-year anniversary friendship. Um, we did, yeah. That's yeah. when we... That's when we uh, um, became official and we were working on Best Medicine. That's right. Together. That's right. So so we're going to be playing around with some stuff because while we're very excited and appreciative for the audience that we built up to this point, um, we want to do some fun, different things. So yeah. we're going to be playing around with it a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. So just look f uh, forward to that and also hang on because it's going to be, you know, stuff we haven't done or mixing in stuff we have done. So it's going to be a test. So if you don't like it. Email Mike at poppsych101 at gmail.com because it's <laughs> all his ideas. <laughs> Most of them. Uh, yeah, but the other thing we wanted to talk about before we jump into this is, so if you guys listen to the show, we would really appreciate it if you went to your whatever podcast app you use, Google, Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, anywhere, Spotify, yeah. Yeah, anywhere you can leave a review or um, subscribe to us. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, that helps. Um, reviews on iTunes really help a podcast. Um, they're actually huge for podcasts to leave a review. But they also let us know like what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. All of the reviews that we have on there right now are all super positive, and that's fantastic. But yeah, having constructive feedback is important to make a better and better show, but make sure you do leave five stars, of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as a, as a, as a therapist, I am always eager to, to get feedback because I want to know that I'm being as effective as I can in helping people. And this show is the same thing. 
Yeah. If there are things we can do better to to provide more useful information or more entertaining shows for our audience, we want to do that. So yeah, absolutely. And it's fun for us. And you know, we do grow every week, which is amazing. Uh, but you know, the goal being reaching as many people with the message, uh, mental health awareness and all that kind of stuff as possible. So that helps us a lot and we appreciate it. So much. Yep. With that being said, let's get right into it with The Aviator. Let's do it. That's just beautiful. I like the desert. It's hot there in the desert, but it's clean. It's clean. I need to sleep. I should drink something first. I should drink something first. Wait a minute. That milk is sour. That milk is bad. I shouldn't pick up the bottle of milk in my right hand and I shouldn't take the top off with my left hand put it in my pocket my left pocket Howard, it's, it's, it's Kate I need, I need to talk to you Can you hear me? Howard Hughes Jr. was an American business magnate investor, record-setting pilot, engineer, film director, and philanthropist. Known during his lifetime as one of the most financially successful individuals in the world. He first became prominent as a film producer and then as an influential figure in the aviation industry. Later in life, he became known for his eccentric behavior and reclusive lifestyle, oddities that were caused in part by a worsening obsessive compulsive disorder and chronic pain from a near fatal plane crash. Today, we take a look at Martin Scorsese's vision and Leonardo DiCaprio's portrayal of Howard Hughes in The Aviator. Well, Mike, this is an epically long movie, and I want to promise our listeners that this podcast will not be covering every in and out of all the various plot twists and turns of... Uh, Martin Scorsese's epic. Absolutely impossible to do. It would be literally, this would be a, almost the exact same. A three hour the long movie. podcast. Yeah. yeah. So we <laughs> no, want to, we're, we're going to be focusing on the mental health issues as portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, as directed by Martin Scorsese. Cause I think it's a very, really interesting portrayal. And obviously this is a real human being that existed in real life. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that stuff in particular. Yeah, and even though this movie is as long as it is, it is just interesting to to watch. Like, I love biopics as it is. Well, it definitely holds your attention. There's never, like, a boring part. It's just yeah. a lot to follow. Yep, yep. So we are, we're going to go through, and this. we did OCD before. We did it in Turtles All the Way Down in one of our episodes. And that was with a girl who had it in her teen years. This is a progression of the illness. Yep. So it's a it's kind of a different uh, take on it and also being real life too. So we'll see. It's a good it's a good idea to get like um how things progress during someone's life. Yeah, and also various presentations. I mean, depression, anxiety, things like OCD are not 
the same for every person. So we want to be able to differentiate what these uh, mental health issues can look like. So yeah, yeah, let's let's jump right in. You know, what is OCD? Yeah. What is it, Ryan? (laughs) So OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was, you know, even if it wasn't something that was super widely known or widely understood at the time of Howard Hughes, um, it is generally accepted. This is something that uh, he suffered from, in particular, being a germaphobe. Yeah. But he wasn't just a germaphobe. He had compulsive behaviors to help address the clear anxiety he had about the potential of contracting various germs. Right. Now, now, what is the difference? Uh, because I've been reading a lot about it. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, when you say it and you think about it, it just falls into one sentence and you think it's all one thing. But obsessive and compulsive are actually two completely separate parts of it. Yes. So you have the obsessive thought which we see pretty frequently uh, for Howard Hughes in The Aviator. And his obsessive thoughts vary from, you know, particularly things that he feels like he needs, whether that be for his health or what he wears or the number of cameras he needs on a movie set. Yeah. And then the compulsive behavior that uh, resolves or reassures or addresses that obsessive thought. Right. Would that be like the repeating stuff? Yes. So, for example, he has the obsessive thought, uh, just to kind of give an example, about germs. And he mentions this frequently, you know, oh, you you don't even know like the number of germs that, you know, you could find on a whatever. Or he he mentions some specific de- diseases from time to time when he's interacting with uh, Catherine Hepburn, for example. And it's like, this is a clear thing that's at the forefront of his mind. And when things start to get a little bit out of control for him, then the compulsive behavior has to sort of satisfy the obsessive thought. So he has to go into the bathroom and wash his hands repeatedly, 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 even at one point in in the movie, washing his hands raw. Essentially, his hands start bleeding. It was a pretty intense scene. It was. Yeah. So it's this obsessive thought followed by the compulsive behavior. So the sort of stereotypical things that we see with Howard Hughes are are also common in other, you know, sources of media, checking to make sure you've locked the doors, checking to make sure that you have, you know, turned the oven off. So it's the checking behavior is the compulsive behavior. And it's because you're having the obsessive thought of, for example, in Howard Hughes's case, I'm not safe. Yeah. And we see that from the very opening scene of the movie where he's being washed by his mother. She essentially tells him more or less that he's not safe. That's what I was going to ask. Like, just what you were saying uh, immediately points to the very beginning of the movie where his mom is watching him. I was assuming that something must have happened or she knew about something that happened that frightened her in Houston. Oh, sure. Um, Because he was born in Texas, but they're living somewhere else at this point. And she mentions like uh, cholera and typhus. Yeah. Like two sicknesses that probably killed people. And she's obviously really worrying it, worrying about it and having him spell out the word quarantine. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately just thought, like, is is this the kind of thing you can plant into someone's like Howard Hughes? Did this get planted as the portrayal is? Yeah. Did this get planted in his brain from when he was a kid? Right. Because we don't know for sure that this specific interaction happened to Howard Hughes in real life. Right. But since it was portrayed in the movie, just to give us example, for me, it's absolutely possible because you think about being a kid, right, where you're 
at least in today's world, kind of told like anything is possible. You can be anything you want. Use your active imagination. Well, we we are podcasting right now. That's right. Because I'm doing, I'm a special, we're special, Ryan. We're special people. Yes. And, and that's what we do that for a reason, because we want kids to uh, be happy and consider all the awesome possible things that are available to them. But when you do this to a child, when you tell them that they're not safe and that uh, people or, or germs that are around them all the time are, you know, uh, can kill them, essentially, and that they need to be quarantined, you're, you're extremely, extremely narrowing the possibilities which they can consider in their lives. So they go about their normal day, let's say they go to school, and instead of, you know, they, they like today's world, they knock a Cheeto on the ground, it's just like, oh, whatever, I love Cheetos, I'm going to eat it. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, it's Cheetos on the ground, oh no, Cheeto has germs, oh no, germs could get into my body, oh no, I could get uh, whatever, hepatitis, just make, to make something up. And, oh, no, I'm going to die. So it severely limits the sort of possibilities that a child could consider for themselves. And even right. if, as a child, this wasn't necessarily apparent for him, because in the movie, as they portray it, you know, when he's a younger guy directing Hell's Angels, you don't necessarily see these kind of hallmarks of OCD just yet. But it kind of gets more and more severe over the course of his life, because you're establishing this, like, this like um, tripwire almost of like when you get stressed, here's something that your brain is going to go back to. Right. You know, I know we, we talk a lot on this show about how like damaging childhood events can be. And realistically, whether this happened or not, we're just going to treat the movie at face value. Yeah. This sort of what might be seen as a very simple event can be extremely damaging for a child. Right. And what you're saying to me is almost like as a kid, you can form like a habit. Yeah, essentially. Yep. And the habit becomes an obsession. Like mm -hmm. it's so ingrained in you that like you can't you can't get away from it. Like taking two weeks off from it, it you got to have more than that yeah. in order to get away from something you've been doing since you were six years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with some people, let's say, who have uh, experienced severe childhood illnesses. And oftentimes they'll carry with them the sense of, being weak or being, you know, susceptible to future illnesses, all these sorts of things like bad things are always going to happen to them. And it's just tough, you know, and, and that, as far as we can tell, what didn't even happen to Howard Hughes. Yeah. But just that experience of you're not safe is enough to plant the seed of the sort of limited expectations that you have about the world. Yeah. And what happens is in the movie, we kind of skip from his childhood directly to his adulthood. Yes. Uh, his like young adulthood and he's actually directing Hell's Angels. Yep. So we don't get to see like the progression from there to um, from childhood to now. But uh, what I kind of noticed in this section was like a really driven intensity. To me, like I thought I saw like a like a beginnings or not maybe not beginnings, but I saw like obsessiveness, like a guy who filmed an entire movie and then refilmed the entire movie because there weren't clouds in the background behind his planes to show relative motion. And he needed that to show how fast and awesome his planes were. So he just spent millions more dollars, and this is in the 40s, mm -hmm. to completely reshoot the movie. And people thought, you know, he was Looney Tunes. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, 
I mean, that's that's like a different level of just being so in it. You know what I mean? And then reshot the whole movie to add sound. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Right. So. So, yeah. So it's there's and I think sometimes this experience of like perfectionism which we might think of as like the lowest level of OCD. And when we get into like stereotyping, you hear people talk about, oh, I'm, I'm so OCD about cleaning the kitchen. It's like, okay, there is a difference between being like a perfectionist and wanting your kitchen clean and actually being OCD. And I think it can right. be kind of harmful to, to reduce that to just wanting things to be clean. But yeah. And, and refilming a movie twice, you know, yeah, a, a yeah. million dollar movie. And but what I thought about this was, like, is there anything about this illness that, like, in this early stage that maybe helped him succeed because he was so, you know, overly obsessive about getting things down to the T and, and doing things at a level that, like, other people weren't doing? So it's interesting because if Howard Hughes was not one of the richest men in the country, um, probably <laughs> at this point— the the perfectionism and, and OCD that he clearly had would have just bankrupted him and there would have been no more opportunities to reshoot crazy movies and to do all these things. So the fact that he had as much money as he did um, sort of enabled him to indulge his compulsions, indulge his obsessive thoughts to a degree that most people with OCD would not be capable of doing. Do you think that that possibly even made it worse? Because we do see a huge progression of his illness as the movie goes on. And his life was, it was truly like that. So, like, do you think that just because he did have, like, the disposable funds to, I mean, you know, have a, a sandbox? Sure. So, yeah, it certainly could be. It's interesting because... No question it was uh, created like an enabling structure for him that, you know, oh, he wanted to make something perfect. He had the resources to try to do that over and over and over again. So could it made it could it made it worse? You know, it's hard to say because we never see any sort of attempts at treatment for what he was experiencing. So it's hard to, for us to say like, well, you know, if he had just crashed and burned during Hell's Angels, would he have gotten treatment or gotten help for him or would he have just ended up bankrupt and just been like a yeah a, a normal person of yeah, that time yeah. um but still yeah. struggling with these issues so it's hard to say better or worse but sure. it certainly would have been different yeah yeah another thing that you see here towards the beginning is that howard is actually howard hughes is actually like super intelligent absolutely not only is he you know obsessive and a perfectionist and has a ton of money, but he he's legitimately intelligent, didn't graduate from college, but is uh, an engineer right up there with the other guys he's working with, building crazy planes that fly faster than any plane in the world, just because he decided he wanted to do that and learned how to do it and executed it. And I kind of wonder this with a lot of different mental illness, mental health issues. If, if in your experience, have you ever noticed that people with higher IQs or intelligence have more issues like this? It's tough because there are a lot of presumptions about what even having a higher IQ even means. Sure. Because I think with intelligence, quote unquote intelligence can come what we think of as like overthinking or obsessive thinking, but it can also bring with it a sense of, let's just say superiority. Sure. 
and and we certainly do see that right with Howard yeah. Hughes, where he he thinks he knows better than everybody else, and in some cases he he legitimately does. He is very intelligent. Yeah, but I think that that also you know probably prevents him from seeing the severity of the symptoms that he's dealing with. Yeah, I actually always think about it in terms of like this pocket, and this is just my own theory. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's a pocket where you hit a certain level of self-awareness sure. that makes you like, con- this is hard to put. It makes you just like contemplate yourself and, and you're just so aware of like your mortality and who you are and your surroundings and of your obsessive thoughts and how you feel. And you're just constantly aware of it. And I just feel like there's a, a, a pocket where it's like, that is problematic and then there's like, um, then the next level of like super intelligent people that like they they're past that, right? Mm-hmm. They're just doing math. They don't worry about that, you know. And then there's yeah. there's like a lower pocket where they don't care about that stuff, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And it's interesting because what I often see, you know, and I've I've shared before in the podcast, I work in Princeton, New Jersey area, so I see people in and around the Princeton area. And you can imagine um, I get students and things like that, people who, you know, are physicists and all these sorts of things. So I, I get people on that scale from time to time. Yeah. And the the thing that you tend to see. Humble brag. Not not of me, of, of them. <laughs> like they are they are incredible achievers. But I think with that incredible achievement comes this like self-judgment of. I should be better or I should be able to handle this on my own because I'm a smart guy or a smart girl. And I think there's this presumption that with intelligence comes the ability to like think our way out of problems, even mental health problems. Yeah. And that's such a huge um, obstacle for people to, to cope with mental illness because mental health issues are not things you can think your way out of, Mike. They're, they're legitimate symptoms. Yeah, you, know, you can't think your way out of a flu anymore. You can think your way out of depression. Yeah, not without treatment. Right. So, so I think to that degree, we do see some of that with Howard Hughes, where especially as his uh, OCD becomes more severe, he does start to become more and more sort of hard on himself and um, isolates then as a result because he's really ashamed of the, of the position that he's gotten to. Uh, so as Howard grows older, he... Actually, you know, he starts meeting women and as he gets more famous and more recognized, he starts meeting women and dating like uh, really famous women. He's kind of he was known as a playboy and always having a different actress or starlet on his arm. And he actually ends up dating Catherine Hepburn. And at this point in his life, he has already started showing symptoms of the germ stuff becoming a little more intense. This is, this is after hell's angels. He's actually working on planes now. So he's, he's past like the movie stuff working on planes. He meets Catherine Hepburn. He's getting germs, you know, getting worried about that, but like he never seemed to care about Catherine and her germs. He couldn't shake other, like he started not shaking hands at this point. Mm-hmm. And stepping away from that, and, and he started washing his hands a little more. But, like, it, it specifically showed us that he would hold Catherine's hand and do things that he wouldn't do with other people, even if he was close to them. Yeah, it's interesting. The interactions with Catherine Hepburn were fascinating to watch because amongst 
the the different women that we see him have relationships with in the movie, there are interesting aspects of support that each one of them offer. Yeah. At different times. And it's it's really interesting that if you sort of picked different support methods from each one, you might end up with like a really stable supportive partner. But because of both because of Howard's symptoms and because he's yeah, kind of, you know, aside from the mental health issues, like he's an intense uh, uh, workaholic and, and also just like an eccentric person. And as a result, that causes a lot of problems in his relationships, both as a result of his OCD and and having nothing to do with it. I mean, he, there's several instances in this movie that he just does not treat women very well, period. Well, you know, and what I was wondering is why would somebody uh, shy away from like shaking hands, even with like the guys that work directly under him, um, but then be able to get very close to women on the other hand? Right. So so he was. And we know in real life he had uh, several girlfriends and mistresses and all these sorts of things. So the question being why or how maybe even can someone with OCD um, or like issues with germs also be intimate or also have intimate interactions um, with a partner? I think it's a fair question. I think essentially it comes down to like competing desires, right? That if he, you know, wants intimacy or wants a connection with a person more than he's worried about, you know, whether or not they can get him sick, then he's able to sort of uh, compartmentalize those things. It's it's the bow, chicka, bow, bow. Uh, you said it, not me. Um, <laughs> they don't. But yeah, I mean, in some ways, because we we know that this is true about Howard Hughes, that he did. He was like a, a philanderer, like, you know, and if you do research into the, the man himself and this movie doesn't show it so much, but there are claims that he used his power and wealth to to force women into sexual relationships with him. And there's one there's one girl that he's involved with in the movie. I don't remember her name, but she's like 18 or 16 or something. She's 15. 15 and it's horrible. And they just kind of gloss over it as like, "Whoa, what an odd thing to do." But <laughs> but it is super uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, it's weird. Yeah, yeah. It's so, like I don't know if this was just like a different time but i don't think so i think it was just because he was so rich yeah people were like oh well he's got money um one of the things i was wondering is about catherine and him he as his he starts his illness starts to get worse yep and catherine identifies with him for some reason i actually was i was reading about her and i didn't see anything as to why she would like identify with his mental illness that she is very clearly referencing when she says, you know, I identify with that. Uh, But Howard does end up admitting to her that he has ideas about things that aren't there. Or even that he's seeing things that aren't there. Yeah, Yeah. that he's kind of like seeing things that aren't there and stuff. And and as far as I knew, like that didn't fall under the OCD category. And I know that everything is, you know, a blurred line. Sure. But I I was wondering if that fell in line and I just hadn't heard of it. So it's a good question, and it's interesting because this experience, and I'm glad that they didn't do this, because it's the kind of thing where in like A Beautiful Mind, for example, they could have done this very like artsy, inside the head of Howard Hughes, what does he see, or how, or what is he thinking even, that would make him uh, feel like he sees things that aren't there. But I guess my presumption when I hear him say that are more or less that he could like, let's say, look at the doorknob handle in a bathroom and just sort of see blood or see 
feces, see things that are very dangerous when in real life, it's, I mean, nothing there. It's perfectly safe, perfectly, you know, normal to be able to touch a bathroom uh, doorknob handle. Um, so that's that that was where my assumption is, is kind of in that sort of obsessive thought area of he sort of sees things that aren't necessarily there. That could be germs, that could be danger. But with OCD, that's sort of what the expectation would be. The other factor that they glossed over a little bit, but sort of alluded to is that Howard does have some issues with either alcohol or substance abuse at different parts of his life. Um, after one of the plane crashes, when he's severely, pretty severely injured, yeah, it's it's generally understood that he was pretty into his pain medication. Let's just say that. Okay, he was wasted. Yeah, so you know, if you're doing those sorts of things, hallucinations can be part of that, whether due yeah. to withdrawal or due to the drugs that they were available to them at the time. It's gonna change the way you think. Absolutely. But around this, the the Catherine time of the movie, when things are just about to ramp up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of when I noticed Leonardo DiCaprio's actual portrayal. It, like just watching, uh, watching him like in the scene where uh, the man, in, he's in a bathroom and a man in crutches comes out of a stall and needs help getting like a paper towel to wash his hands because uh, Howard is there washing his hands, of course. Yep. But he won't get it for him because it's going to break his ritual up. He just watched well, it he, because he doesn't want to touch him also. Yes. Like just watching Leonardo DiCaprio do that scene, like it made me kind of like squeamish almost. You just kind of feel bad for him as you're watching him. You feel like he's trapped in this cage. Yeah. And really, and that's what obsessive thoughts and for people with OCD often are, is that they know the thoughts are irrational or are obsessive. But even knowing that the thoughts are coming from OCD or coming from anxiety, just knowing it isn't enough. You can't just say, oh, well, that's my OCD acting up again. Um, I don't have to wash my hands this time because it's, it's that's where the compulsion comes from. It's it's I can't let go of this thought until I do something about it. Hmm. So so that's what we're we're seeing really with Leonardo DiCaprio's portrayal is he knows this guy is is probably not contagious, but he can't help himself but to be kind of terrified at the prospect of even uh, uh, being within a couple feet of him. Yeah. You know, he puts his little handkerchief over his mouth and just like, will barely talk to him. And he's sort of apologetic about it, but, you know, refuses to help him. Right. And then and then the guy leaves the bathroom, but the door shuts. Yep. And he and he th- he had already thrown away his paper t- or his towel or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't another one. So he just had to wait for somebody to come in. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that that I saw and I thought was sad and thinking about people that are actually going through this is he was alone in that scene. Like he wasn't putting on a show for somebody else. Like, look at me and my, you know, my intense illness and how I have to stand here and wait for somebody to come in. Like he's alone and experiencing this. And in from Leonardo DiCaprio's face, uh, he looked like he was in agony. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so you it's know. just it's just kind of sad to think about, you know, we have people out there going through it. They're by themselves and they're they have these experiences and we're not even seeing them, you know? Yeah. And the one there's there's a couple scenes that I do like to, would like to talk about in terms of the interactions with Catherine Hepburn. One is um, in one particular opportunity. I think they leave a party. They escape a party that's been particularly like annoying or boring for both of them. And 
this is the scene that I think you were referencing when Leonardo, uh, I should say, Howard starts to open up about seeing things and sort of worrying that he's crazy and stuff like that. He even says at one point that it feels like flying blind. Hmm. And I think that's such a, a powerful metaphor, not just for OCD, but for all uh, mental health issues. And yeah. she very, very compassionately is like, well, you taught me to fly and I can take the wheel. And I think that's that's a metaphor that I maybe we'll explore later, later this week. Hint, hint. But <laughs> but I just think it's it's really, you know, it's funny because that's the extent to which people in the 40s, 30s and 40s were comfortable talking about the struggles they were experiencing. And it's that sad. I really, as far as the portrayal, you know, I don't know if their relationship was like this behind closed doors, but Catherine Hepburn gave him a, like a ton of support. Yes. And, and even, even after they separated. Right. It, like when it got to the worst of times, like she mm -hmm. came back to check on him, you know, because yeah. she had love for him. And, and I just thought another, like, how sad is this, that this not only are some aspects of his personality bad for her and his selfishness, but his mental illness, like it's hard to deal with. Yeah. And as a person with, you know, mental illness, like that's one of the, like, that's one of the scariest things is thinking about your support system, like crumbling because they can't handle it. Absolutely. And, you know, in mentioning support system, I thought one of the best scenes of this movie was when Howard Hughes and Catherine Hepburn go back to Massachusetts, I'm assuming, or wherever, Martha's Vineyard. I'm going to call it Virginia. No, they're definitely, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Georgia. Wherever they are. Is it, is it the South? I don't know. <laughs> I just assumed they were like New Englanders, but I don't actually know that for sure. <laughs> so they go back to, to the Hepburns estate <laughs> and they have this dinner. And man, what a great scene of... And, you know, whether he has mental health issues at this point or not, just like the ev normal everyday struggle of like trying to fit in with your significant other's family and trying to just be comfortable was just an awesome scene. One of my favorite yeah. scenes in the movie. Yeah, it's like they, they kind of try to portray the family as like uh, like self-absorbed and everything. But at the same time. It's like, so was he, right? He wanted to talk about planes and they wanted oh, to talk sure. about other things and like they just didn't mesh. Yeah. Okay. So as things go forward, Howard's illness starts getting worse. And this is something when we covered OCD in the past that we didn't get to see in Turtles All the Way Down is mental illness progression uh, with OCD. And the first thing that I wanted to ask about this is... Is it accurate that when you have OCD that it can actually get worse and worse as you age? Or is it like some mental health issues where the older you get, the better it gets? So it, it didn't portray it accurately. So it's it's not it's, it's not either or necessarily. Um, but I will say just in general, you know, mental illness left untreated, left unaddressed with coping skills or various other interventions, even on a personal level, is likely to get worse. Hmm. And OCD, you know, the way it's portrayed in The Aviator, you know, gets worse in a lot of specific ways. We'll get to the most intense aspects, but Howard sort of tries really hard. You can tell he tries so hard to sort of maintain a good public face. He's really good at it, too. 
Yeah. So, you know, the, the before the bathroom scene, I think the reason he ends up going to the bathroom in one of these parties is, you know, he's sitting at dinner and he's got his steak and his peas all in order. And Errol Flynn, uh, <laughs> played by uh, Judd, not Judd. Gosh, who is what, that? What's his name? Uh, Jude Law. Yeah, Errol yeah. Flynn played by Jude Law, who's just like a jackass of an actor of the day. Um, just like reaches over with his bare hand and like grabs some food off of Howard Hughes' plate. And as the audience, we know like, oh my God, he's going to freak out. But he totally keeps it under under control, which is fascinating to watch. And, and certainly in my experience in working with people with anxiety, this is, I would say, fairly typical in which they stuff their emotions so much in public that then in private, it they can't help but to have a sort of explosion or implosion whether that's a panic attack or obsessive compulsive behaviors yeah because they feel like they can't express their discomfort with you know whatever things are going on public yeah absolutely yeah i actually like i have a story that really like fits here in my life sure please yeah yeah when everything all first started with me with the bipolar stuff is and of course i didn't know it at the time was uh, i was in a band and we got invited by like a and th- this is not a humble brag. <laughs> we got invited by like a like a a sub record company from Sony Records to go play in Minnesota for like this tryout thing. And like the day before we left, I started having a panic attack. And the panic attack lasted the whole time. And this was like intense. Like my heart rate was up. I was sweating. I, I didn't eat for two days because we were gone for two days. And like m- my lips were turning blue. Like this was some of the worst days of my life yeah. going to Minnesota, but I couldn't tell anybody. Right. And we had to stay in these hotel rooms. I remember we had two hotel rooms and everyone from my hotel room, like I, I just was like laying in the bed and like they were kind of awkward about it. And they all just went into the other room to, you know, party and that kind of band stuff. Sure. And the only thing I could do in Minnesota was I just got up and started running. Okay. That was your coping um, skill. Yeah. I, I didn't know what else to do, but I had to hold it in the whole time. And on the way back, one of my friends had a Xanax for his like personal use. Sure. And at this point I was telling them to take me to the hospital because I, I couldn't keep it in any longer. Like I finally, like I, I held it in all the way through the performance and everything. And then he was like, oh, I got this thing. I think it's for like anxiety. And I took it. And I passed out. Yeah, yeah. Like almost the whole way home. But but when I got home, my mom answered the door and I broke down, you know? Yeah. Finally, you felt comfortable enough to release it. Yeah. It was just yeah. like, I, you know, I was afraid of judgment, afraid yeah. of, yeah, breaking down that like that face you put on for people. Yeah. And that's so the, the statement that you made is exactly the kind of thing that I'll challenge a lot of time with my patients of. Uh, the kind of absolute statement of I couldn't say anything or I couldn't tell anyone. And I think the reality, which you just sort of more specifically identified is that you were scared. Yeah. You were maybe felt uncomfortable or even unsafe in being honest with how you were feeling with those people. Yeah. Well, I did have a, I did have a friend who was very specifically, he used to say things like when you're sick, it's all in your head. Like even like a cold. Sure. So it was like, I, I couldn't, he was there, so I couldn't like say it anyway. But yeah, but that's, but so to, to our audience members, and what I would want to say with that sort of mentality is when you feel like you can't do something, even if that feels like without a shadow of a doubt, true, 
what I try to suggest and, and push my patients to do is to identify the feeling of what's happening. So I feel like I can't do this because I'm scared or because I don't know what's going to happen or because I don't feel comfortable with these people or because I don't trust them. Yeah. Because I think once you can identify those things, it gives you so much more context for what you're actually experiencing. And then once you are safe with family or with a therapist, then you can more, I think, fully you know, go into what was happening in those situations. And that's just incredibly valuable for people when they feel like they they can't talk about things or they can't be open about how they're feeling. Yeah. So, but, so to get back to, to Howard Hughes, Howard um, Hughes, <laughs> he does kind of start to leak out some of these things. Um, and we're talking about the escalation and because he's doing this, like stuffing, trying to keep a good public face, what starts to happen and how we know it's starting to escalate is some of the verbal tick type stuff. Yeah. He's, he starts like repeating things that he says yes, and he exactly. also starts to like damage relationships in his life, like sure. worse than he had previously. Yep. You know, Catherine leaves him. And this is like, for me, this is like the pivotal moment after Catherine leaves. He takes all of his clothes and he burns them like naked in his backyard. And then he walks inside and calls like one of his assistants and asks him to go to the store yes. and buy him, you know, a certain amount of suits in a certain color. And then he can't decide where it's either Sears or pennies or whatever. And he keeps jumping back and forth and like none of them are. But, but right, he keeps repeating things. And then, yeah, so he's, it looks like he's getting worse at that point. So, yeah, so that repeating a lot of senses is because he's trying so hard to kind of keep the stuff on the inside. When it starts to leak out, when he says something like, send me the blueprints, now it's something that it's the obsessive thought has been um, spoken. So now it's like, oh, oh, no, I, I have I have to say that the right way or I have to make sure I've communicated exactly what I want or I don't have access to my compulsive behavior in this moment, and I'm sort of stuck just with the obsessive thought or the obsessive expression. So that's why we start to see him have these tendencies of repeating himself uncontrollably. Yeah. Okay, so I think that we should take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to do a new thing uh, that I think we're going to start trying to do more often where we're going to ask very certain questions about what we're covering this week. And then after that, we're going to talk about kind of the peak of Howard Hughes' illness as portrayed in The Aviator. So we'll be right back. All right, Mike, for our new segment, that's going to be an ongoing thing, probably, as we play Maybe. around with our format. <laughs> um, we're just going to call this Well Actually. Well Actually. Yeah. Well Actually, uh, there are some things that are good about the aviator in terms of the portrayal and well actually there are some problems that we had with it in terms of looking at it through a lens of 2019 so we're just calling it well actually because we're going to do like uh ticky tack complaints or yeah. ticky tack things little tiny things that we liked right right so i, I think what is you're going to do is you're we're going to ask some questions and then we're going to answer them as far as our perspective from 2019 yes and uh we will say well actually Yes. <laughs> okay. So I'll just say, um, what was one problematic thing about the way this movie portrayed uh, the way people talk about or don't talk about their mental health? So the scene I want to talk about in particular with the aviator is actually the very end where Howard Hughes has been through just like a nightmare of plane crashes and terrible relationship stuff. He has just 
you know, the climactic moment, he's just flown and successfully landed the spruce goose, Hercules, right? And in that sort of post uh, scene, he's being congratulated, but then he starts having these symptoms again of he's repeating himself, the way of the future, the way of the future, and he kind of gets stuck. And his assistant and the head engineer, you know, kind of shuffle him out of the room and say, you can't let anybody see him like this. Yeah. And, you know, my hope would be, you know, well, actually, why? Why can't people see him like this? Now, again, this is 2019. This is not 1940. But I think in today's culture, especially celebrity culture, people, and I'm grateful for this, are much more transparent about their mental health symptoms. And I think it's awesome. I think it's 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 so incredibly empowering for people to see uh, people in positions of power or positions of uh, notoriety just to be really transparent about their, you know, depression symptoms or anxiety symptoms or OCD symptoms or trauma that they've experienced. And that that's so valuable for not just for people, but I think for the celebrities themselves as well. Well, actually, from my perspective, when they took him into that room to leave him by himself, maybe their perception of it saying, you know, we can't let anyone see him is off base for now. But in that situation, as someone experiencing something extreme like that, I would rather be alone. So being led off into the room to take care of myself and not be seen by people. Well, actually, I thought that was a good thing. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm totally on board for that. But I guess my issue is if they're going to acknowledge that something is wrong where is the help? <laughs> because it's just uh, like, oh, Howard's going through one of his episodes again, like, get him out of here. And there's just and nothing in the whole movie, even even medication, even a psychiatrist, even anything, nothing happens. And granted, this yeah. is like very early on and what therapy or support would have looked like. But he never even has a conversation with a doctor. Yeah, he's just called eccentric. Yeah, yeah. Which is like their way of saying he's crazy, you know, mm -hmm. They're like, oh, he's a loony, you know. Yeah. So, so it's tough to watch that. Um, so that's not okay for me. And, and I want people watching this movie now to take away that, you know, people with mental illness or mental health issues should not just be rushed and put into a room by themselves so that society doesn't see them that way. Yeah. Gotcha. I understand. Yeah. And then the sort of other thing is like, uh, okay, not okay. So... You know, oftentimes we'll watch movies again, we're watch, we're in 2019 and there are things about the way things have happened in the past or even the way things were uh, talked about or presented in the past that are would be hugely problematic today. Yeah. So obviously this is based on a real person, but the way Howard Hughes treats women is pretty appalling. <laughs> it's it's absurd. It is. It's actually beyond just like what you would consider like mis misogynistic tropes yeah. from that period like it's it's a little extra and, but now, i guess my problem with it is that i felt like they could have portrayed it in a way that was like it wasn't okay that he did this but he was kind of treated like this cool guy playboy like he had the one scene where it was like he wants to know what pleases the waitress and it's like oh man he's he could get any girl. He could, you yeah. know, woo any woman, any celebrity. They're all, you know, interested in him. Um, well, well, actually, you just put a burden on this woman in a different time. Yes. Who feels like she's standing next to Howard Hughes. Yes. The gazillionaire. And now she has to meet you in, you know, room 216 or whatever. 
Yeah, so I think this movie would be uh, shot and portrayed very differently today, where even if it wasn't like problematic behavior at the time, something about, you know, women not liking being treated this way, because it's just not. I mean, and, and to be fair, there were portions of the movie that showed the women definitely not liking the way that Howard treated him. He got hit by a car. Um, yeah. he got dumb. Well, that's what happens when, um, that's what happens yeah. when you, uh, have a contract with a 15 year old girl yeah. to be yeah. your girlfriend. Exactly. So lots of terrible things. <sighs> okay. The, the last thing I want to do is a for effort. Like where's, where's the a for effort for either the director of the actor in terms of something that was really compassionately portrayed about mental illness. And I think for me, the scene with Howard Hughes, and we're going to start to talk about the scene where Catherine Hepburn comes to the, I guess it's his house or it's the movie studio where he's just locked up in the, yeah, the screening I room. I think it's that what, like their office and he's got a screening room. Yeah. Yeah. And when she comes to him and really, really tries to help that that felt like, you know, uh, an honest portrayal of the, the difficulty people can have in trying to reach people who are really struggling. And I, I appreciated that scene and it was still sad to watch Howard Hughes in an effort, you know, refuse that help. But I think that's that was a very honest and real portrayal. Whether it happened in real life or not, I don't know. But I really appreciated that particular part. So, so Scorsese, yeah. you get an A for effort for that scene. They also had the other woman. And I also really liked her reaction. Ava Gardner, yes. Yes, Ava Gardner. She was into Howard as far as, I think, not romantically, but she liked spending some time with him. But she also really knew him and was okay with his obvious problems and so to the point when it gets really really bad for him like she's still there for him and helps him you know go through some of the difficulties of, of trying to stand back up when you're at your lowest and it's like even though she doesn't want to like marry him or anything she still showed up you know and like shaved his beard and all that kind of stuff so yeah exactly so there was some really empathetic portrayals of, of these women honestly caring for this man even though he was terrible to them at various points yeah. in their relationship. So, all right. So, so as we transition into the climax in some ways of, um, at least the movie's portrayal of, uh, Howard Hughes's OCD, it gets really intense. It does. What happens is he gets into a plane accident and this kind of, I think triggers, um, from what I saw kind of everything to just to get a thousand times worse. I mean, he gets into a horrific plane wreck, uh, flying solo and breaks bones everywhere in his entire body, you know, two inch lacerations in his face. Like he's got scars everywhere. His heart shifted to the opposite side of his body. <laughs> when I yeah. heard that, I was like, I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> yeah. Like how do you not die? But yeah. you know, this would be traumatic for anyone. And to add it on top of what you're already going through, like I could, uh, it's going to get worse, you know, especially when you're not seeing a therapist or, or, you know, seeking any sort of coping skills at all. But uh, he ends up going to what we think is like his building where everyone works at and he has a screening room there. And this is where things for me get a little shady as far as what I saw there. And I, I kind of wanted to really talk about Leonardo DiCaprio's actual portrayal here in the room, sure, but also just everything we saw. So Howard Hughes is in this room. They basically show it for like, you know, he must be in there for a month or something, because by the time he's done being in the room, he has a beard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, what you see is he's constantly repeating things. He lets his nails like get like an inch long. 
he's just walking around naked in his own filth, uh, which is crazy because, you know, he's supposed to be this germaphobe, but he's like peeing in bottles and just keeping them there and watching the same film over and over and like sitting in like this chair, kind of like Jim Carrey's Riddler. I don't know if you noticed that. He, he looked just like the Jim Carrey Riddler with his legs to the side. But yes, yes. For me, this this took OCD as far as what I know of it from portraying it intensely to just like this whole different plane. And at this point, I'm wondering like what you're seeing and if we're even talking about OCD at this point, because I mean, to me, it just looks like a psychotic breakdown. Yes, it's certainly a breakdown. And the it's I guess the way we would describe it as all of his compulsive behaviors that were helping him to sort of maintain daily life have completely ceased being effective because he's a shut-in. He lets his hair grow. He lets his nails grow. He's supremely isolated. He doesn't let anybody come in the room unless they're, you know, uh, wearing white gloves and bringing him his milk and all these sorts of things. And he's just repeating. And, and you can kind of almost imagine what it must be like inside of his head where he's just like on repeat, like he's a stuck, he's a, a skipping CD where it's just yeah. these obsessive thoughts over and over and over again. Yeah, you got to hand the milk at a 45 degree angle yes, and have the cap yeah. and turn it just a certain way. And if you don't do that, then we're going to start all over. Like, yes. I don't know. It just seems so intense to me. I just thought this can't be. Well, it it can. And I think that some of the criticism of Leo's portrayal was that it felt so far removed from what we like consider as as normal behavior that it's like, oh, it couldn't have really been this bad, right? Yeah. But we know uh, from Howard Hughes' own account that there were times as he was essentially a recluse, lived in appalling conditions, and only had his hair and nails cut once a year. So this is, it's entirely possible that it did get this bad. Huh. Now, you know, the, the sort of thing that I think people have a hard time understanding is... Well, if someone's a germaphobe, like, how could they also have used tissues everywhere? How could they also pee in bottles and have that around the room? And it's and it's exactly what I said before. It's if the breakdown of the compulsive behaviors uh, no longer sort of helps soothe the obsessive thoughts, then the the sort of necessity of things being clean almost is comes secondary to what the obsessive thoughts are. Okay. So the obsessive thoughts are, you know, bring in the milk, bring in the milk, bring in the milk, or, you know, I need 10 chocolate cook cookies, or here's where the bottles go, and that that's all that exists. So the compulsive behaviors to then clean or wash things are no longer happening because they're no longer effective. Well, I, I was wondering if you thought the same thing that I thought in this scene um, when they show the bottles, the milk bottles full of pee. Mm -hmm. Well, he's peeing in the bottles. Yep. What about, what about the other? Where's that going? I don't know, Mike. <laughs> That's immediately what I thought. Like, what's happening sure. to the... Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. I, I, I want to say that from my perspective, what I saw here was people who aren't grasping what it is to uh, isolate yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that some of this extreme stuff didn't happen, but I think they showed an entire year into one, you know, one little section. Mm -hmm. Because when I get extremely depressed and I get hit with the like a real depression, I I 
lock myself away. Like I actually go into the dark and shut the door and, and lock it. And I would say that I don't bathe for a few days, you know, and I don't cut my nails for a while. And yeah. I don't smell super great or brush my teeth and, and I don't let people see me. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. That's a huge thing. And so, so I, I kind of thought when I saw this, that they just, maybe they just didn't understand that he was probably just like laying there. You know what I mean? Just more or less. Yeah. And and maybe it wasn't this thing where he was walking around the room talking about milk bottles and, I mean, what we were seeing was Leonardo DiCaprio pulling off an insanely great acting sequence, Mm -hmm. but just what I thought was just not based in, if I was assuming, and I am assuming, but reality at all. Well, it's interesting because before we talked about sort of his ability to just uh, keep himself composed in public, and as as you're talking about, I think this is completely logical. It's... If you stop trusting your ability to keep yourself composed in public, the natural follow-up to that is, well, I shouldn't be in public anymore. I should just stay home or I should just stay in my office or I should just stay, you know, in my movie theater and that's where I'm safe or that's where it's okay for me to repeat these phrases over and over again. So even though it's not logical to us watching it from the outside, for him, this is a a safety thing. It's okay. I can be here. I can just you know, sort of let myself go in a sense. And it's okay if I don't do things to everyone else's expectations. It's okay if I repeat myself. It's okay if I have all these compulsive behaviors. I can just do whatever I need to do in this yeah. space. You know, what's weird about that is not only is it, it's this great relief. And I, and I see what you're saying is that, yeah, maybe he was in there like repeating everything and and doing all this, but like for me, like it would be this great relief because now I can just be depressed mm-hmm. and like let it just like and not have like, to worry about lying to people or pretending. Yeah, just like yeah. melt on the couch sure. and be sad and think bad thoughts and not worry about the face that you have to put on. Yeah. Um, but but the like catch twenty two about that is what a relief and like the anxiety levels go down, but then once you isolate yourself for so long. Then it just starts doubling up on you. And now you now you can't leave. Right. Because for me, it's like then the sunlight's too bright. And like mm-hmm. it just becomes this circle that eventually you have to figure out how to break it. Yeah. So to kind of weave in takeaways for our audience, which we're going to try to do more of. To your point, it's okay to need to be alone sometimes, to to need to to have a day off, especially if we talk about mental health days, all that kind of stuff. Totally fine. Isolate yourself if that's something that you need to do. But it can't be an indefined thing. Yeah. It can't be, you know what, I just need to be home for a while. It's, you know what, let me uh, go home from work today and I'm going to melt into the couch for two hours. And then at the end of that two hours, I'm going to check in with myself again. And I'm going to do an honest assessment of how I'm feeling and what my needs are. Because I think mm-hmm. the problem with with Howard Hughes and, and even to the extent that you're talking about is that once we give ourselves permission to let go, the likelihood of something like triggering us to come back into society is is 
in some cases, uh, very low. Yeah. And the only reason that that uh, Howard Hughes came back into society was because he was called to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's not going to happen to most people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, one, no one wants you to talk in front of Congress. Right. So. so, you know, so it's really important that if if you need that time, if you need that break to isolate or to not bathe for a day, like totally fine. But make sure before you start that uh, isolating thing that you feel like you need, to give yourself a limit up front, like, okay, yeah. I need a day or I need a weekend or I need a week. I'm not, I'm yeah, not criticizing yeah. the amount of time, but make sure you know what it's going to be ahead of time and communicate that to your support system. Yes. I was, I was going to say, because like for me, if, if you were to say two hours for me, then you just gave me two hours of anxiety. No, you know I know. I mean? and, and that was just an example. I'm not saying like it should be two hours. It's just like whatever you think your needs yeah. are, communicate that to your spouse, communicate that to your family, to your best friend, to your therapist, to your assistant. I mean, the scene where he finally comes out of the office and like doesn't have any clothes and an assistant is almost like surprised he's alive yeah. um, is, <laughs> is so interesting because it's like no one really even remembered that he was in there anymore. That's how long he was in there. So you need to be able to check in with people like, hey, I, I, I'm okay. I'm still just going through this. I still need this time. I just wanted to let you know or check back in with you about where I'm at in this process. Yeah. All right. All right. I hope you guys like the conversation about the aviator today. Uh, don't forget to go and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. But now we got to get into our ratings. If you haven't listened before, every week Ryan and I rate on a scale of one to five Ryan rates on the scale of accuracy, and I rate on the enjoyment scale. Uh, Ryan, what did you think of The Aviator? Well, out of five spruce gooses... Oh, nice. Because what a great name for an airplane. I gave The Aviator a five. I mean, there are things that we don't see that happened in Howard Hughes' life. You know, he was married, I think, once or twice. Um there are things that he did that we don't necessarily see, and there are some probably slight exaggerations and, and things taken for granted about maybe what happened in his childhood. But in terms of what a realistic portrayal of OCD could look like, this is pretty spot on. So even like the like really extreme parts. Yeah, I mean, look, that that part is not common. But just because it's not common doesn't mean it's not realistic. And it so doesn't I mean want... it didn't happen to Howard Hughes. Exactly right. We know that Howard Hughes sort of became a recluse. So to that degree, it was accurate. So uh, five out of five spruce gooses for the aviator. Nice. All right. So I am doing, uh, f I'm going to rate on the scale of five milk bottles. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, but not the, scene. not the milk bottles at the end. Okay, great. Yeah, the ones with milk in them. The really clean, like fresh, like you could taste yes. the whole milk in it. Mm, okay, great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. And lots of vitamin D. Okay, so I love this movie. I love Martin Scorsese, and I love Leonardo DiCaprio, and I love them as a pair. The Departed is like my favorite movie ever. and But this is, man, I love this movie. It's up there for me, too. It is long, so I can't watch it a million times, but I've seen it five or six times. But the cool thing about watching it this time specifically is I looked at it from a different angle. I knew I had to dissect it and watch for the mental health depiction in it. And what, what made that really cool was this wasn't just a movie about Howard Hughes. To me, it was just as much a movie about mental illness. That was the star of the show. It was Howard and his co-star was his mental illness. Like they never set it down. 
it, he carried it throughout the entire movie. And even at the end, when you there was a scene where they kind of did that like triumphant, everything's going to be awesome after this. And then all of a sudden he starts going into a repeating thing and like the music gets solemn. And it's like, no, Howard Hughes lived with this. And so they never put it down. And Leonardo DiCaprio is amazing, whether or not I think it was a little intense in the movie theater scene. But yeah, five out of five for sure. Mike, I don't know. Is that is that one of our first like 10 pointers? Uh. Only if you don't count when I rated everything we did five out of five for like okay. the first ten episodes. We, we went, yeah, okay. We'll have to go back and like uh, get some stats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, everyone, we got to get out of here for the day. Make sure you stick around for Ryan's closing thoughts. But first, we need to thank Kevin McLeod for all the music we use on the show. If you need to use royalty-free music, you can find Kevin at his website, filmmusic.io. And now for some closing thoughts on the 2004 movie, The Aviator. We harp on this theme a lot, but in this movie, it was especially apparent how damaging the impact of childhood trauma can be. Howard Hughes' mother probably had good intentions in wanting to keep him safe and healthy, but helping your child understand reasonable risks and worries versus excessive risks and worries can help to prevent some of the anxiety and obsessive thoughts Howard eventually develops. It can also be extremely helpful to teach your children who they can trust to help them if something does go wrong. As we talked about in the episode, having a co-pilot you can trust to help you cope with mental health struggles is incredibly important. Letting them help you, even if you feel like at your worst, can often be the first step towards recovery. So even if you feel like you should be able to solve your problems on your own, or feel like you can think your way out of mental illness, Letting others into your experience or even letting them fly for a while can help prevent things from crashing. Thank you so much for listening to our show. If you like the show, please check out our social media pages. We are everywhere at poppsych 101 We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych 101 at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. poppsych 101 is on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us share these discussions about mental health, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.